2: lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th.
1: Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. I'd like to start out by asking you two questions. My first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. (laughs) So what is the most important thing? what is the most important thing for you in the core of your core? and the second question which is pretty much related is would you rather be happy or would you rather be free? <laughs> now I would guess the answer to the second question is probably both and, as the previous presenters, I think, have pointed out really very clearly, that very often happiness is not the byproduct or the immediate circumstance of our search for freedom. In my experience, there is a joy that transcends happiness and sadness, that transcends wellness and illness, that transcends living and dying. The most beautiful Americans I've ever met, with very few exceptions, are people who are almost dead. And I choose to be around them partly because I feel service is the path that has been given to me, but also because in being around people who are approaching death, I am almost forced to be more awake myself. It is so painful to be around somebody who I might not see ever again and not be there fully. So some of you I know, some of you I've never met before, uh, we might not ever see each other after the end of today. In Buddhism, before one even begins to practice, there are what are called the four mind-turning truths. And the first one is, you're going to die, but you don't know when. What could be more obvious intellectually than the fact you're going to die, but you don't know when? But if, in fact, we took that and kind of combined that with that question, what's the most important thing? If we really looked at each other right now, we're listening, we're we're being here together, and realized that we didn't know if we're going to make it out of this room alive. We're thinking we're gathering information to take somewhere else to improve the lives of ourselves and other people somewhere down the road. But that, that conflict between happiness and freedom really comes because we live in a fundamental human ambiguity. There is, from the standpoint of the fixated ego structure, the ongoing desire to go toward what feels good and makes us happy and to get away from that which doesn't feel good and makes us not happy. But from the standpoint of consciousness, of this movement toward freedom, all of it is an equal manifestation of the the divine. So there's this urge, this moment-to-moment urge that is almost unbearable to ignore, it leads to addictive behavior, and it's that urge to get away from being fully alive. Why would it be scary to be fully alive? In fact, the qualities of the awakened mind, one of them is spaciousness. And what you may notice, I used to be a meditation teacher before I gave that up. What... What you may notice when the mind gets quiet feels really good. One is opening to a deeper sense of who you are in a certain way. But after a little while, thoughts are beginning to arise about what's for lunch, uh, what am I going to be doing later on. And the reason for that in my investigation is that resting in that spaciousness begins to feel very lonely to the ego structure. So this conflict is going on again and again and again. Do we want to be free or do we want to be happy? When somebody is confronted with a life-threatening prognosis and is told, in fact, that you're not going to be alive probably for too long, this first mind-turning truth that you're going to die, but you don't know when, the don't-know-when becomes more into focus and it begins to be something that might be happening sooner sooner rather than later. So can that truth be something that begins to change the way we're living our lives even though we might not have that prognosis? Uh, If there is any dirty secret to the work that I do is there isn't too much special or different that I say to somebody who's dying than to somebody who's not dying. Whenever I use the term dying, there's always the possibility uh, that somebody can find some kind of cure. I remember getting on a plane a long time ago, and a man in a business suit came and sat down next to me on the plane, and he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to New York to teach a meditation retreat. And he said... Isn't that interesting? And that was, that was the end of our conversation on that plane ride. And a few weeks later, I got on another plane, and a very similar gentleman in a business suit sat down next to me. And he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Seattle to teach a workshop about conscious dying. And he said, my God, what a coincidence. My wife just died. And we started having a conversation. He started crying on the airplane. And I even remember the time when uh, we had a Republican president a while back who seemed rather rigid in his beliefs, and I thought I could talk to him for days and days, and it wouldn't change his view of really fundamentally what it is that's going on. But if his daughter were diagnosed with cancer, if his wife had died, maybe then there is the possibility that something could profoundly change. So, admittedly, there is a lot of suffering in caregiving. There's a lot of suffering that happens when one has a uh, diagnosis of cancer. But in Buddhism, they say, and let me make an apology here. I'm not really a Buddhist, but I like to talk Buddhist (laughs) because it's such a fresh language. (laughs) Cancer does not cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. Dying does not cause suffering. Resistance to dying causes suffering. Now, it is human nature that if you get a cancer diagnosis or someone you love does or if you are dying or someone close to you is, that there will be a very human response to that of sadness, of grief, But at the same time, if we're not aware of how the suffering is arising, it is much harder to work with it. The Tibetans have a slogan that is really a horrific translation, but I'll say it anyway, and that is, drive all blames into oneself. And it doesn't mean you blame yourself, but as soon as you blame, I'm feeling this way because of the election. I'm feeling this way because of the traffic. I'm feeling this way because of the weather. I'm feeling this way because the doctor said that to me in that moment, healing becomes impossible. That healing becomes possible when we withdraw that sense of it's blaming out there for the way I'm feeling right now. But at the same time, there's another parallel spiritual path that isn't about working with suffering. A lot of the work I do is truly about compassion Opening Your Heart to Suffering, my dear friend Stephen Levine, who died one year and ten days ago, said very poetically, compassion is the ability to keep your heart open in hell. But there's another spiritual path, which is keeping your heart open to the light. And the Tibetans say that when you die, the light you will see is as bright as a thousand suns. So that if in our lives... When we begin to experience that light or that love, possibly through music or through a relationship or through nature or through relationship with God or through spiritual practice, when we get to that point where the light gets so bright that we want to pull back from it, that is our preparation for dying. Can we keep dying into the light? It's the the flip side of that urge that I was talking about before, that urge to get away from being fully alive, that urge to go into addiction, that urge to go into the conditioned mind. So that there is a fundamental sense of groundlessness, a fundamental, groundless, edgy, ambiguous quality to human existence. It's not solid the way we like to think it is, the way we try to protect ourselves by identifying with that which seemingly doesn't change. So that this this tension between who we really are and who we have a concept of is where fear of death arises. Fear of death, all fear is fear of death. All fear is fear of death. And fear of death is exactly equal to lack of enlightenment. The New York Times did a survey a number of years ago. What are you most afraid of? Number one was speaking in public. Number three was dying. And that might be slightly humorous, but the place where anybody would be afraid of speaking in public is the place where you're afraid to die. It's the place where you or I are caught in separateness. When I was a small child, my earliest memories are getting two severe electrical shocks. I had very loving parents, but my earliest memory is picking up a hairpin off the floor and was amazed that those two <laughs> things were exactly as far apart as those two holes in the wall. Is that is that, that was put there just for me. And I, I put that in there and the next thing I knew I was on the other, other side of the room. And a little bit later, my mother erroneously determined I was old enough to make my own toast. (laughs) The toast got stuck, the fork went into the toaster. Everybody's laughing and I don't know why. And I couldn't let go for the longest time. After that, I started stuttering really, really badly for about 20 years. And they say that if you stutter as an adult, it never goes away. But I had some really deep sense that going deeply enough into meditation, I would find some kind of uh, wholeness or peace that was beyond what had happened to my body. But as Suzanne was talking about, it is possible to do the spiritual bypass to get away from being a human being. I was very good at that. And another one of my uh, spiritual teachers said, until one comes into intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the, the, the quality of you being a dilettante, that you, it, it, you'll be able to uh, fix your personality, be a little bit happier. But in terms of transformational change, until you know... In your bones, that you are going to die. Uh, Spiritual practice is just dealing with what it is that's going on on the surface. So, what's being suggested here is that moment to moment, there is that urge to get away from being fully alive. There is this fear of death that colors what it is that's going on moment to moment. Another way of talking about it is that there is a subtle grief, not the big grief, not the grief that. Your loved one is dying, or that you have a cancer diagnosis, but the grief of being a human, as well as the joy of being a human, there is this sense of separateness that we get comfortable with, that we assume that the way we're separate from each other is the way things are. And that is really another, another uh, quality, if you will, of fear of death. How much time do I have? 3.30 Okay, because I would like to... Yeah. 3.30 supposed to Okay. Rumi said, grief is the garden of compassion. A garden is a place where something wonderful or beautiful or edible can grow. And... Grief has the quality of separateness. We often think of grief as the sadness that arises when someone dies or we lose something. But I would suggest that any negative emotion arising in response to separateness is grief. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, you get angry. That's a grief reaction because you're not really connected with that person. Compassion has three defining qualities. See if you can feel them as I talk about them. The first is a feeling of connectedness. In a very real sense, we're all connected in this room. We're all connected on the planet. But particularly right now, we're connected in this room. Can you feel that? Can you feel that sense of connectedness? So that in one sense, spiritual practice is transmuting the feelings of grief and separateness to the feelings of compassion and connectedness. Another defining quality of compassion is spaciousness, and by spaciousness we mean emptiness of self, that our heart is truly unbounded, our heart is large enough with no edges to contain all the suffering, not just the suffering of those we know, those close to us, but all that's going on on the planet, in Syria and in Africa and in Washington and right around the corner. Is it possible to stay open in that way? Only by being with that urge, by being with that subtle grief, and by opening to that light that is brighter than a thousand suns. So that when dying happens, it's another moment of being in that light. When Gandhi was assassinated, many of you know, I'm sure, that as he was falling over, as he had been very unexpectedly shot in the chest, he was saying, Ram, Ram, Ram. And he wasn't saying Ram, Ram, Ram because he was shot. He was saying Ram, Ram, Ram because he always said Ram, Ram, Ram. A name of God. So his life was this relationship with God in his name. Whether he was going to give a talk or whether he was falling over dying. The third defining quality of compassion is warmth. And it is certainly possible to feel the suffering that's around, and protect oneself with a kind of cool understanding. So you can do a practice of taking any or all three of these defining qualities. Is your heart feeling spacious? Or are there a lot of corners and sharp edges bouncing around inside? Is your heart feeling warm or is it feeling kind of cool or cold? Is your heart feeling connected? Uh, When my brother was told that he was dying of pancreatic cancer by Kaiser-Oakland Oncology, he received the news in an after-hours email. (laughs) So it's easy to have compassion for my brother. How about the oncologist? Who was never really trained in giving that kind of news to people, probably. I helped my younger brother die, my mother die, my father die, all of cancer. So until we are free, there is again and again arising this fear of the fundamental spaciousness that is our true nature. Do we want to be free or do we want to be happy? What is our motivation? What is it that is most important to you? So I'd like to open this up to questions and answers or discussion, as the case may be.
2: to ask a question given no one was here and it's just formulating as I'm standing here so I might seem a bit um, in, in in creating verse but I, I came to the edge of meeting the veil um, frequently during a seven year journey with cancer and um, what I hear you say is my 15 year spiritual practice um, doing yoga and Engaging with um, spirit inside of me had not been touched in the way I was touched during a month lying in a hospital room during a bone marrow transplant. And in that moment, I really expected that um, I would see all the animals and all the people and all the children that I deeply loved. And I had this expectation of what sitting in the veil while waiting for my stem cells to take life again would be like and instead all I saw was magnificent images that would flash through my mind especially in the moments where fevers were just enraging of nature and trees and waterfalls and bodies of ocean and shots of nature that I'd never seen before and then historic moments that I remember from childhood where nature had touched me and I'm wondering if um you might be able to address how um mother or nature um, sometimes has um, come to those who are on that edge?
1: Right. That's a great question. Uh, In those uh, groups that I facilitate that Toby mentioned, and in fact I'm teaching a workshop tomorrow and Sunday in the city, uh, I work with a healing paradigm. And I don't think I'm saying anything uh, completely new and original, but what I think I have discovered is that there is a uh, profound and very useful parallel between stages of early childhood development, awakening of the chakras, stages of Buddhist practice, somatic therapies. And uh, the Dalai Lama, on his third visit to America, said, now I'm beginning to understand, and it makes me very sad, you Americans don't like yourselves. (laughs) And in most Eastern practices... Uh, it begins learning to resolve, learning to dissolve, and it 's assumed that before we begin these practices that we 're grounded and we 're down in our belly. These practices were developed by and for Asian people a few thousand years ago who walked around barefoot didn 't have an iphone <laughs> didn 't have a, a car, and that they were They were grounded people, so it was assumed that you're happy, you like yourselves, and now we can begin this job of this great project of disidentifying with separate character structure and identifying with true nature. And in these groups, I found that even people who have been meditating for decades very often aren't grounded. They don't have a connection with those images that you were speaking about, and that it's very useful for people to have a firm foundation somatically in being grounded, centered as a uh, bodily analog of Vipassana or mindfulness meditation before one begins to go into the dissolving into the heart, the boundlessness of the heart. So if, in fact, you're trying to go into the boundlessness of the heart and have this relationship with all beings or with God or with consciousness and you haven't trusted being dependent on the earth, the quality of being grounded, or trusted being independent and autonomous, the quality of being centered, one could see that this, this notion then of letting go is going to be something that's only going to feel safe when the environment is supportive. And if you have, if you have cancer, the environment is not being very supportive. So to tell somebody with cancer to, okay, just open your heart and love what's going on can really, in a way, be a counterproductive strategy that the person will often feel like a failure because it's going to be very, very hard to do that. And instead, to actually do some practices of inhabiting the lower part of your body, the base of your torso, feeling that, that willingness to be dependent and then beyond that, becoming independent and being a martial artist of being a cancer patient or a, of a caregiver or whatever it is that you might happen to be. But to the extent we're doing these things because we think we should be doing them, we're doing them from our minds, it's gonna be very exhausting, burnout provoking, and those experiences that you were having of really getting in touch with these natural images feeling grounded and supported by the mother in all of her levels, Mother Earth, Mother Mother. Uh, When Suzanne was talking about her mother, the the saying came to me, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. (laughs) Any other questions?
2: Uh, When you were talking about... um... Being, it sounded like you were saying sort of like you're most alive when you're dying. It's like um, I had an experience where I, I thought I was going to die because I was drowning. I mm-hmm. thought I was drowning, and um, I, the first thing I thought it was that my children would be without a mother. That was my you know my worst regret. Uh, my husband and I have a friend who always is doing things that uh, we call near death experiences. He's right. he just loves going out in the snow and building snow caves you know, things that a lot of people feel, you know, you're just going die, to die doing that. So just thought maybe you could talk about that.
1: Okay. okay. Well, I've certainly been around a lot of people who had uh, advanced cancer. And then uh, through God's grace or whatever it might be, they found a cure. And they said, you know, I'm so glad it doesn't look like I'm dying anymore, but I really miss how alive I felt when I thought I might be dying soon. So... I I don't think I quite said the way you quoted me there, that that you have to be dying to be alive or something like that. But it's when you know you're dying, when you know that this is the moment in which to awaken, the second of those mind-turning truths is that life is precious. This is the only moment in which we can truly awaken. So that if we know that, rather than thinking, this weekend I'm going to go to the meditation retreat or I'm going to go to this or that, that uh, there are very few s- separate practices I teach people to die consciously. The same qualities of awareness, generosity, compassion, love, that help us be more alive now are exactly the ones that will help one die well. It's, it's really not something special. Uh, pretty much we're assuming here that consciousness survives death, that there's part of us that dies, there's part of us that doesn't die. And that's a whole discussion that we really don't have time for right now. But I I would guess that almost everybody in the room has some sense that something survives death. And that that something that survives death is here right in this moment. Stephen Levine wrote a book called Who Dies? Very good question. Mm -hmm. What is it that dies and what is it that doesn't die? So that, yes, we have a body, a body that suffers, a body that gets old. Yes, we have a personality that that has certain qualities of pain, but is it possible through these practices that we're talking about to come so deeply into the present moment that we're dying moment to moment and using the fear of death that will arise again and again to transmute into, okay, I'm willing to die even into this. Relationships, illness, caregiving, all those things will reveal the place where you might still be afraid of dying. All fear is fear of death.
0: Thank you so much. Really potent teachings. Uh, so part of my soul path is teaching healthcare providers how to be compassionate and loving. Uh-huh. And there's much I could say about that. I have great humility in this work, and any advice you have, I'm a willing recipient of your okay, wisdom. Okay, that's,
1: that's sure a big question. <laughs> Teaching healthcare providers to be compassionate. Uh, in the East... Compassion is usually taught in terms of how to be compassionate for the suffering other person. And yet here in the West, as some of the things I've implied already, we lear- need to learn how to have compassion for ourselves. These qualities of connectedness, of warmth, of uh, spaciousness, defining qualities of compassion. There's also the quality of being able, able to equalize and switch yourself with somebody else. And being a healthcare provider, particularly being a physician, it's very often to feel you're equal to the person that is your patient, that you're kind of trained to think you're the expert and they're the consumer and keep it at that level. Uh, to the extent that somebody a healthcare provider, or anybody can feel the suffering inherent in that separation, then compassion will naturally begin to arise. Compassion can be spelled in two different ways. It can be spelled the usual way, and it can be spelled with a capital C. Because with a capital C, it is our true nature. When we get out of the way, that is what remains. So that by being able to come into intimate relationship with this subtle grief or this pain, this quality of being separate from other people, being separate from ourselves. Uh, when I think about my brother's oncologist, I wonder what his marriage might be like. That my my guess, and I've never met the guy, but my guess is that if he's treating my brother that way, that probably there's a great pain in his heart. And to get somebody to feel safe enough to begin to feel that pain, to create a, a container, create... Uh, places like Commonweal or support services like I guess you're providing yourself, that people feel safe to admit what it feels like to be separate, what it feels like to not have a warm heart when you're telling somebody they're dying. Then compassion will arise naturally for them without you having to make them feel it, or if you will. So that 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 light as bright as a thousand suns is our true nature the, one of the qualities of the awakened mind is compassionate activity another one is great clarity we see the suffering we see the state of what's going on and the third quality is this quality of spaciousness that there is no separate self who's caught in suffering it's, uh, the ego is a verb it's not a noun it's something we're doing so going back to the question, uh, what's the most important thing? And often, I mean, I've got, a, I've got a PhD in mathematics, so I know what it's like to be so busy that you don't have a chance to ask yourself those questions. It's difficult being in medical school or being a doctor to slow down enough to ask what is important.
0: Um, I just wanted to know, uh, you said there are four Buddhist mind-turning truths, and you mentioned the first two. What are the other two, number three and
1: four? Okay, the four mind-turning truths. The first one is you're going to die, but you don't know when. Now, these mind-turning truths are done as contemplations. It's not something you just think of and say, oh, right, I'm going to die, but I don't know when. But suppose you kept that in the back of your mind the next time you went and saw your partner or the next time you had lunch with somebody. Uh, The second one is life is precious. Having a human birth where you are strong enough to be here, have a clear enough mind to understand what we're talking about, have an, an open enough heart to want to participate in these ideas is a very rare thing. Most people on this planet are very busy surviving. And beyond that, the preciousness of human life is, is uh, such that this is the only moment in which we can awaken. You're going to die, but you don't know when. Life is precious. There's karma. And there's suffering. There's dukkha. So if we take all these four together, we we gather them like a beautiful bouquet of flowers. What does that say about how we will approach this next moment? Even though your consciousness doesn't die, you have this body now. You have this personality now. How most completely can you use it in this next moment? So that taking any of these four or the, the, the combination of them and bringing them together will uh, turn one's mind towards the Dharma. That's a good time? Thank you all so much.